Hey guys, support for this week's episode comes from our friends at Manscaped, the number one site for men's below the belt grooming. Yes, you heard right. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Yes, it rhymes. Yes, it's a hook, but boy, oh boy, this stuff works. It's great. Manscaped, get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code GOODSEATS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off, yes, with free shipping, yes, at manscaped.com. Use that code GOODSEATS. And now, here's our show. Lodi looks to the end, end zone. He's flushed out of there. It was intended for Alan Pitts, and the Calgary Stampeders give up the ball on down with nine seconds remaining. So the Baltimore Stallions are champions of the Canadian Football League for 1995, as Jim Sparrows, the owner, accepts congratulations. That's Marty Long, the defensive line coach, and he was just hugging and giving a kiss, too. Look at these guys. They what? It's an exciting bunch of guys over there, and they deserve it. For Don Matthews, his second win as a head coach, five times as an assistant coach with the Edmonton Eskimos. He was on a Grey Cup winner. He won the trophy in 1985 with the BC Lions, and he will take it back to Baltimore in 1995. A decade has passed since he last sipped champagne from the Grey Cup. But this has been a very satisfying season for the Baltimore Stallions. Their 13th consecutive win. They finished the year with 10 regular season wins, two postseason playoff wins, and now this Grey Cup triumph, and they celebrate as Grey Cup champions of 1995 and one of the happiest of all, Jim Spiros, the owner of the football team. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings, friends. What's new? What's shaking? What's happening? What is going on? My name is Tim Hanlon, and uh, this, of course, is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. And, And that clip that you just heard, is uh, probably a quintessential example of what we're all about on this little show. That is from uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company back in uh, in November of 1995, November 19th, 1995 to be exact, live from Taylor Field in Regina, Saskatchewan. And yes, that was the first and only time that a, a team in the United States won the Canadian Football League's Grey Cup. And that, of course, was... Maybe not, of course. Uh, this is probably a team that nope, not many people remember. The Baltimore Stallions. Yeah, in 1995, the Baltimore Stallions were the best team, bar none, in the uh, Canadian Football League. And, and you're scratching your head going, wait a minute. There was an American football team in the Canadian Football League? What are you talking about, Tim? Well, uh, obviously, you have not then listened to, to our earlier episode with our friend Ed Willis. Uh, when we talked about sort of on a survey basis. Uh, That uh, initial experiment back in the uh, uh, mid-1990s when the Canadian Football League, yes, uh, somewhat financially strapped, said, hey, why don't we uh, add some franchises in the United States? And that'll help sort of rejuvenate both financially and uh, from a fan interest uh, level 
more uh, oomph, I guess, if you will, for the CFL thing. Uh, we, you know, we've been playing football for for dozens of years, just like the NFL. So why don't we also look into perhaps uh, spreading some of our unique brand of football uh, into the United States and and Baltimore. Uh, not in the first season of the CFL's expansion into the United States, but definitely in the second, in 1994. It was uh, an expansion franchise. It played in Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And um, we're going to get into uh, the beginnings of that story, which uh, were just as curious as the ending, which you just heard of that story, uh, with our guest this week, Ron Snyder, uh, who has written the book, the essential, the quintessential book, uh, on the Baltimore, what they became, the Baltimore Stallions. Of course, uh, historians will remember that 1994, they weren't called the Stallions at all. They were just called the Baltimore, really nothings, the CFLs. They wanted to call themselves the Colts, but uh, the uh, the NFL uh, had other designs on that. And, 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 and we'll talk about all of that as to why. But Ron's book is called The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise. It's a fascinating tale of a city, Baltimore, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, had a ton of football heritage, uh, lost its football heritage seemingly and literally overnight when the Colts absconded for Cleveland. And uh, it's not Cleveland, excuse me, for Indianapolis. Uh, Cleveland comes in later, doesn't it? And then uh, gets the NFL back when Cleveland then decides that they want to move to Baltimore uh, in 1995. And Interesting, in between those two events, not immediately, but but sandwiched in between the leaving of the NFL and the announced return of the NFL, was this very interesting two-year saga of the CFL franchise in Baltimore, that first year known as the CFLs, or you know, maybe more informally as the Colts, but never formally because they don't want to violate copyright, and the second year as the Stallions, and of course, winning the entire championship of the CFL in 1995. It's a fascinating story. Uh, We get into all the nooks and crannies of it, including what happens or what happened to the history of this team, lest it be forgotten. And uh, sadly, it is um, a lot of it has been forgotten. And that's obviously partially why we exist here is to not forget uh, these very important stories of, of times that occurred. And we are fascinated by the topic and the conversation with our guest, Ron Snyder, coming up in just a couple of moments. You will enjoy it, I guarantee. Before we do so, I just want to say hello and welcome and thank you to our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, who has the uh, most amazing website for throwback shirts, not only of uh, teams and leagues that we like to talk about and relish here on this little show, and again, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, franchises uh, no longer with us or previously domiciled, high quality t-shirt stuff that you can find at oldschoolshirts.com. Uh, you name the team or the league, they probably have uh, a good smattering of offerings, uh, but they also have a ton of stuff in things like pop culture, uh, whether it be old radio stations or defunct amusement parks or ice cream parlors or restaurants of uh, of your, all of them memorialized in their original t-shirt form and the original logos that they've somehow gotten into their little band of uh, Mary Productions there. Uh, and OldSchoolShirts.com out of Cincinnati is a, a tremendous place. And of course, uh, our friend P.F. Wilson uh, and his team have a promo code for you, of course. And that's Good Seats. Good Seats. That's the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. Please use that early and often for 10% off all of your purchases. I, I've got a bunch of shirts uh, myself. They're long-lasting. They're they're well-made. Uh, they won't let you down. And by the way, they're probably going to get you a couple of comments 
uh, with some of those great logos and stuff. There's one in there. If you're from New Jersey, like I am, uh, which I just added to my collection, uh, dedicated to the old Action Park in, uh, I think it was uh, Vernon Valley, Great Gorge, New Jersey. And uh, it was uh, an interesting amusement park, to say the least. I, I wouldn't call it an amusement park. It was more of a sort of, uh, you know, an action sports kind of thing, including uh, a very, uh, in retrospect, dangerous uh, cement sort of toboggan ride that uh, if you went off the track just a little bit, you uh, you, you left some skin along the way uh, as you slid down that uh, that thing. But the Action Park, uh, some vivid and uh, mostly fond memories there uh, in the old uh, Vernon Valley, Great Gorge area. It was just one of the many sort of cultural shirts and uh, remembrances you'll find among sports and all kinds of other stuff at oldschoolshirts.com. And again, use that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Thanks very much to oldschoolshirts.com for their sponsorship. And uh, of course, we thank you for giving a listen to this uh, very interesting conversation uh, with our new pal, Ron Snyder. Let's talk about the Baltimore Stallions of the Canadian Football League, shall we? Here's our conversation coming up right now. Help me out here. Give me a give me a starting okay. point by which you care about this team and this uh, this wacky little window of Baltimore uh, and professional football. Uh, we talked a little bit about it with Ed Willis, you know, a year ago or so about sort of the whole crazy experiment of the CFL thing. But how do you stumble into this story? Well, I come in at it from a, from a different angle. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Baltimore resident, I'm a longtime sports writer here in town. Um, and I was six years old when the uh, Baltimore Colts left town. I was 18 when the Ravens arrived in town. So you do the math from first grade to 12th grade. We didn't have an NFL team here. So my whole childhood was out with NFL uh, free, basically, as far as our own team. You know, so um, so I didn't have a team growing up. And there was this talk of the of uh, expansion coming along in the early to mid 90s. And, you know, we, we we had all the ownership groups together and everyone felt really confident that. Baltimore was going to get a team in 1992. They had they sold out Memorial Stadium with you know over 50,000 fans for a preseason game for the Saints and the Dolphins. Um, and and you know, we thought that we we had a shot. And you know, they went in Charlotte, got the first team, and ended up being the Panthers. And we understood that it was a new ta- team in town. It was a new market. They were gonna, but then you know what? Was they're going to do two teams. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to get the next one. We felt really good that we were going to get the next one. Okay, we had so many chances to get a team in the interim, you know, with the, the Cardinals had teased coming here, the Bucks had teased coming here, a couple other teams had teased coming here. And they make the announcement in Jacksonville. We kind of understood Charlotte, Jacksonville kind of ticked us off. Because um, we're like, well, what's Jacksonville? They already have two teams in Florida. And we got really upset. And, you know, there were a lot of people that were completely done with the NFL at that point in time. You know, we're getting ready. Uh, this is, uh, as we're talking, Ed Reed's getting ready to go into the Hall of Fame. There was no Ed Reed. There was no Ray Lewis. There was no Ravens. You know, there was nothing in town as far as football goes. And we had the Orioles, who were still, you know, enjoying the run of early Camden Yards. So there was a lot of sellout crowds. So it was a baseball. We had a lot of baseball fans. But we still wanted football. But, you know, we kind of had, you know, Pete Rose, uh, so, um, Tagliabue, uh, had said, Paul Tagliabue had told us, you know, maybe we should take that money and build a museum. Well, that made us even matter. And we were ready to just tell the NFL where they could stick it. And along comes this guy, Jim Spiros. 
And he says, you know what? You guys don't need the NFL. We're coming in. We're bringing a CFL team here to Baltimore, and we're going to call them the Baltimore CFL Colts. And Baltimore, if anyone who knows Baltimore, we're a blue-collar town. Uh, we have a little bit of inferiority complex. We have an us-against-the-world mentality. And you know what? We said, you know what? It's not the NFL, but let's just give this thing a chance. We know Doug Flutie is. You know, we know who Pinball Clemens is. Uh, we know Warren Moon played up there for a while. So let's see what this CFL thing is all about. And we just rallied around it. And I just remember, as a, as a you know, this is the first football team that I had a chance to enjoy as a, as a child, uh, as a, you know, as a teenager. And, you know, I started watching. These guys were pretty good. It was fun football. It was a little different. It wasn't NFL, but you know, the, the bigger field the three downs, um, and, and it, was, it was fun to watch. And, you know, they go all the way one year, they make it to the, you know, they make it to the, the Great Cup the first year, and then they make it to the, they win the Great Cup the second year. And we're, you know, it's us against the world. It's us against the NFL. We, we get to play a year without a name with the team because they, the, the NFL sued us. You know, Canada doesn't want us in the, in, in the CFL. They, they still have a lot of Canadians were resentful of the U.S. expansion. So it was really us against the world, which is something Baltimore always rallies behind. Um, and then, you know, the Ravens come, announced the Browns were announced they're coming from Baltimore, to Baltimore. And next thing you know, the, the Stallions win the CFL in 1995, and then they're gone. Now, I don't even remember them really leaving. I just remember they, they played one day and they were gone the next. And it's just like, it's like, wow, they were you know, they did everything we asked them to do, and we just kind of, you know, it was like, you know, the ex-girlfriend dumped you. They were awful to you. They were dumped you, and then you go and you find, you know, uh, a new girlfriend who's who's treats you right and and wants to, you know, do everything for you. And then the old girlfriend calls us. You know what? We'll take you back. And then we all went and back to to the we left the other girlfriend uh, behind. And I was totally, you know, they never really. They, they meant a whole lot. They bridged the gap between the Colts and the Ravens. They taught a whole generation of football fans how to be a football town again. Um, and I think it helped us get ready for the Ravens. Um, you know, everyone says, well, the, their success here um, was the reason, the, you know, that the, the Ravens came to town. Now, the reason that the Ravens came to town is we had a great stadium deal and there was everything in place. I think the fact that the Stallions did so well that they got 35,000, 40,000 fans to a CFL game helped, but I don't think it was the only reason. And I always felt like it was it, the story needed to be told. I always wanted it to be told. Um, and I, through the years, I'd written a news, you know, uh, an update article here and a little article there, you know, with the various spots that I was and just kind of updated the team, just kind of reflected on it. And then ESPN always did these 30 for 30s, you know, that everyone loved. Man, that would make a great 30 for 30. I mean, what what a confluence of events. How else could you describe this two-year run? It, it, was, it had everything. It had, you know, tragedy, triumph. It had, you know, socioeconomic issues. It had, you know, uh, everything that you could ask for in a, in a story all wrapped into one. And this never got really told. And, you know, I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. Um, and it was a long process. I mean, I tried for a long time to get this, make this book happen. Um, and then one day, I said, you know what, I'm just going to make it happen. And, you know, this is kind of where we're at. Well, so, all right. So clearly there's passion in there, right? So this is, uh, this seems to match up with some of your later childhood as well, which, you know, to me is, is a theme that, that kind of echoes, I think, frankly, a lot of our listeners kind of have some pang of, 
uh, their own childhood histories. And maybe arguably that's what sort of, you know, keeps that sort of flame uh, alive around, you know, teams and leagues. It certainly was for me. Uh, as I pursue right. all these other ones, right, with me about being a New York Cosmos soccer fan. I mean, that that to me sort of was it was very much part of my my childhood. But I'm also hearing now sort of, OK, here I am as an adult now and, and the story does need to be told. How do you go about the process before we even get into this kind of the, the elements of the story itself? How do you think about going about getting this story kind of framed and a narrative for it? in the process of, of, of writing the story? So the process, um, luckily, um, I, you know, like I said, I, I've been a, a journalist in town for a long time, so I had a lot of contacts um, in the industry, um, including the old, their former uh, Mike Gaffigan, who was the team's uh, PR director. Uh, he's still in town. He's a, he's a Baltimore native. He was a sports producer. He went on to work uh, for the Tunica Racetrack for a long time uh, and now is a, uh, working uh, uh, in sports administration at my alma mater, Towson University. So I stayed in contact with him through the years. We always talked about wanting to do this. Uh, he talked a lot about the players as well, and he kept in touch with a lot of the players. So he was able to help me connect with a lot of the players. So that was that was one element. Um, you know, I also, uh, there was several sports historians in town um, that have helped me with other projects that I've worked with through the years that had all types of memorabilia, photos, things along those lines. And that really helped add that all element because again, it's, it's, they're, they're, these are teams that don't exist anymore. So finding making, finding those artifacts was important as well. And you know, again, knowing growing up in Baltimore, knowing fans, knowing season ticket holders, um, did that help? And of course, you know, we live in the modern day with the internet. So the internet, social media, YouTube, you know, that all helps. So really, it was a combination of old school, new school, technology. You know, and this institutional knowledge as well, um, just living here and knowing the story. So it all kind of, you know, I, all the elements were there. It's just a matter of finding a way to put it all together. How many people really wanted to revisit this story? Because it, it seems, depending on your perspective, right, either it, it it opens old wounds or or there is some kind of nostalgia for Or frankly, I can imagine a whole bunch of people in town and frankly in pro football generally that would how can I best describe this? Almost want to sort of paper over this little period of time between the Colts leaving and the Ravens arriving. Well, look, again, I think if you're from my generation, if you're, I'm 41 now. If you are, I would say, 30 to 45, you know, that was a time where, again, your your childhood was kind of taken away from, from the Colts leaving and you didn't have football. So there's that generation there that, that was here, um, that, that there's childhood memories that, that, that really embraced the Stallions. Um, there was, of course, some of the older Colts fans who, you know, loved the fact that they brought football back and they could, you know, they could go out there and they could cheer on the Colts. Um, and, and again, even if they weren't going to call them the Colts, they had football back in Baltimore. The, um, so there's, there's that generation. And, you know, I, uh, I'm also, uh, uh, I wear many hats. I'm also an adjunct. Uh, uh, journalism, uh, media communications professor, and you know, talking to a lot of students who told me, "Wait a minute, we had a CFL team in Baltimore, and they had thirty thousand fans come out to watch the CFL, and they were intrigued." So it, it, there was a multi generational um, intrigue, intriguingness about it. Um, and, and then also, uh, there are several um, fan groups that are still out there on social media. Um, that still connect. They have reunions. They talk to each other. They share memorabilia from this time. 
um, they've wanted this for a long time as well. Um, and they helped connect me with, you know, a lot of the players. They still go up to the Grey Cup, um, you know, even to this day. So there's, um, there's a lot of interest in it. And again, because it's more, the story is more than just this two year, you know, this, this football team and how the CFL team is. You know, I know, um, the other book kind of looked at the whole CFL, you know, USA experience, experiment. Um, this is really a story that really, I think, again, I think it's a story that starts the day that the Colts left town and ends the day that the Ravens arrived. All right. Well, let's set the table a little bit. Right. So 1993, right. The CFL uh, announces that they're going to uh, uh, add a team, one team in Sacramento, the gold miners. Uh, to play in 93 and they and they do indeed do that and uh, you know not among the better teams shall we say of of uh, of the league that year but the next year 1994 uh, there was obviously some level of success because three count them uh, new teams added from the United States including uh, this new team in Baltimore so you mentioned Jim Sparrows obviously he is a key player in all of this maybe you can give our audience a sense of who he is slash was in all of this and how the idea of Baltimore getting a CFL team of all things comes into play. Cause there was a little dalliance with the USFL back in the eighties, right? They, they were nominally called the Baltimore stars. They didn't even play in Baltimore. Uh, you mentioned the, the pursuit of both an expansion franchise as well as trying to lure uh, the Cardinals to Baltimore. And that kind of, those kind of fizzled out. What's the story of Spiros and why the CFL? Okay, well, I think it was a, it was really a, a perfect storm kind of came together, right? And you talked about it, and, and book goes in a little bit about the USFL. You know, there were the Baltimore Stars, but really, I mean, they practiced in Philadelphia. They played in College Park. Uh, they never actually played in Baltimore. The league folded before they ever had a chance. So they were never really in Baltimore. You know, again, this is kind of a perfect storm that kind of came together. Uh, the, the city was looking to Memorial Stadium at that point was vacant because, again, I mentioned earlier, the Orioles had moved into Camden Yards. So you got this huge stadium downtown that's sitting vacant. Uh, you have, you know, they're, they're hoping to place an NFL team in so they could eventually build a new stadium in downtown Baltimore, which they eventually did with the Ravens. Uh, but again, when that, um, when those, uh, you know, I think Baltimore um, didn't get the NFL team. And there was talk about the CFL team possibly coming before that, but they were waiting to see what the NFL was. They were obviously, again, they were waiting for the, they were waiting to be asked to the prom by the captain of the cheerleading team, <laughs> so to speak, right? Um, and then when, when, when she said no, well, they said, well, we got another date here. Let's, let's see what this, this date has to, has in store for us. And Jim Spears was a, was a, a former college football player, played at Clemson. Uh, he had a, some, a good amount of experience in, in business. Uh, and he was a ball of energy. I mean, he was, you know, he kind of came in and he saw, he saw an opportunity that maybe uh, would never come around again. I mean, there, there were, if there was a time in Baltimore sports where this could work, and I think again, the window was very short for it to work. He had to come in at just the right time. And when the league said we're going to Charlotte and Jacksonville, I think Baltimore said, you know what, we don't need you guys. Um, and, and he said, look. I love you. I, I want to bring football back to Baltimore. You know, and I'm going to bring we're, we're, the CFL is coming, and we're going to call him the. You know, the moment he announced that the CFL Colts, we were going to be the CFL Colts, 
he captured the heart of Baltimore because, you know, again, it's that us against the world mentality. And, you know, for them to be successful on the field, they couldn't have called themselves anything else. Now, whether he knew that they were going to get sued or not, you know, that's, again, you know, he, he took a chance with that, um, whether they were going to be able to use that name. And we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But he said, you know, we're going to bring the cult back to Baltimore. And for every fan that grew up on Sunday without a football team, and for every fan that cried the day those Mayflower trucks moved out of Baltimore on that snowy March day in 1984, they were ready to give this guy a chance. So he kind of, it could not have worked, I don't think, in any other time in Baltimore sports history, but that window right there. And he, you know, he sold Baltimore on the CFL, and they were ready to ride with him. Well, so it sounds like the the Colts nickname, right, was very much part of his mixture, right? Not only bringing a team of pro football, you know, we'll show the NFL. There's obviously a market here as people have been sniffing around and trying to get. And there's a stadium re- ready, willing, and able to to host it, and hopefully a market that's a, that's hungry for it. But it sounds like he was almost under the impression that the Colts nickname could be gotten or had and was was a valuable part of sort of all of it in terms of at least marketing, no? Absolutely. It was the Baltimore CFL Colts. I mean, so he thought, you know what, we're going to call it the CFL Colts, not the Baltimore Colts, the CFL Colts. And the marching band was was the Baltimore Colts marching band, and we'll talk a little bit about them as well, who, who, you know, so he said, well, we got the marching band here. They're still the Colts. We got the Baltimore Colts. Let's, Let's give it a shot. And, you know, I think... That is what you know the fans wanted. You know, and I think that they could. I don't know if he would have gotten the support that he got, and if he'd have called them the Bombers or even the Stallions that first season. Um, you know, he had to come in and really come up with a name that would connect with the city, and then no other name would work other than the Colts. All right. Well, let's let, let's uh, let me uh, parse that into sort of two planks of pursuit here. So, one, let's let's finish this nickname thing, right? Because as the team, well, actually, before we get to the nickname, but the team, so Spiros is, what's his, what's his MO? You know, how does he go about, you know, kind of convincing the city and leaders and all that kind of stuff? Because he's, you know, it's one thing to kind of get folks to rally around the idea of getting a pro football team. But I guess it's quite another, A, to convince them about the CFL, like a foreign, you know, kind of concept. And then two, uh, put a team together to, to let alone getting a nickname in place. Well, again, I think there was, there was there were a couple layers here. One, like I just mentioned, you have Baltimore City, which owned Memorial Stadium. It's sitting vacant. It's not gathering. It's gathering dust. It's 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 not doing anything for the community at that point. And the Orioles again had moved to Canyon Yards a couple years earlier at this point in time. So you know, they were keeping it ready for an NFL team. And the governor at the time, William Donald Schaefer, who was mayor um, in Baltimore when the Colts left, and and took it as hard as anybody when the Colts left town, really wanted to bring the NFL back to Baltimore. They had this huge deal in place. Um, you know, they put the funds in place for downtown stadium and it really went all in for the NFL. So he was kind of a holdout. Um, the mayor at the time um, uh, of Baltimore, uh, Kurt Schmoke, uh, he realized that, look, we got an opportunity to get a tenant in the stadium, get ticket receipts, you know, get, you know, look, we don't have the NFL at this point in time. We don't know if the NFL is ever coming back. But we got this team here, and we know the CFL, is, yes, it's an expansion, but we know the CFL has been around for, for decades. 
Um, and, you know, I'm willing to give this guy a chance. Uh, what also helped was the fact that he networked very, very well in town, along with, with the, obviously with the leaders. Uh, he met with uh, Tom Maddy, uh, former Colts great, who uh, was part of the ownership team. He owned a portion of the team. You know, he also met with folks like John Stedman, the great Baltimore Colts, uh, Baltimore Sun columnist. So he, he met with all the right people um, and networked and got everyone on board. You know, he, he built this foundation up and, and really was ready to rock and roll uh, heading into that season. Well, it's also a more exciting brand of football as well, right? So uh, and, you know, it does overlap sort of the later summer months that arguably could attract uh, some bigger crowds versus uh, the more direct competitive uh nature, I guess, of, of the NFL. So there's some some idiosyncrasies, I guess, to the schedule uh, as well, which makes it seem uh, even, I guess, a little bit more more intriguing. But so he, he gets everybody involved in it, and clearly there's a motivated stadium owner in the city uh, to sort of see that. And and frankly, I guess the, the sort of cult's name Pixie Dust doesn't hurt. But it doesn't go that smoothly when it comes to getting the nickname because the cult's owned by the NFL or, or part of the NFL, right? Don't take kindly to their quote-unquote nickname uh, being used in their former place of uh, of residence. W- what sort of happens there? Walk us through the craziness of that, because I, I'm not sure <laughs> you could have picked a more awkward uh, nickname, uh, what they ultimately had to use their first season. Right. So, yes. Yeah. So what happens is, is uh, obviously goes to court because – the NFL and the Ursays were not going to let this go by. Did Spiros even kind of, was he just being naive or was he willing to pick the fight and thought he was on the right side of this? Or I guess it just seems kind of, I guess in retrospect, how could you not think a lawsuit would come out of this? I'm not sure he didn't think a lawsuit would come out of it, but I think he knew for this to work, he needed to get the community support. And I don't think, I, I think it Having that community support and knowing Baltimore being an us against the world mentality, for them to get that that initial support, I, it wouldn't have worked. I don't think any other nickname would have worked. Um, whether if they would have gone with the Stallions, if they would have gone with the Bombers, if they would have gone with you know any one of a number of names that was floated about um, at that point in time, I, I think to get to, to get to, to attach that that passion of football, that anger that they had against the NFL. Um, the city had at the NFL against at that time. It had to be the Colts. Um, again, I think it was it was a it was a calculated risk on his part. A little bit of dreaming, I guess, too, right? So the momentum and the the the, the community spirit and all that can do, and will kind of maybe ultimately solve the problem. Right, right. And he thought maybe you know what it's, it's David versus Goliath, um, and and so forth. So of course, you know, the NFL is the NFL, and they've been around for as many years as they've been for a reason. Uh, so there's an injunction placed against them right towards the beginning of the season. At this point in time, the end zone has Colts on it. All the programs, um, you know, have Baltimore Colts on it. The shirts, the hats, the, you know, every piece of memorabilia out there has Colts written on it. So there's an injunction placed against the team and they're not allowed to have any men of, of TV, uh, promos. You know, the Colts are back, you know, um, all to have Colts involved. So they can't use the Colts. It's a week of, you know, right before the regular season. What are they going to do? So they end up, you know, literally having interns take Sharpies through every 
piece of uh, a program and ticket stub and so forth and, and black out the Colts. They, they blacked out the, um, the end zone. They, you know, they had to bleep out Colts in the, in the promos that were already airing on, on TV and radio. And they didn't have time to come up with a nickname. So they kind of went with the Baltimore's, uh, I guess for, I think really newspapers headlines purposes, they, they called them the Baltimore CFLers. That was basically at that point in time, unofficially, you know, officially they had no nickname. So, you know, um, you know, Bruce Cunningham, who did the radio broadcast, uh, you know, told me, he said, uh, a longtime sports cast here in town said we, myself and Joe Washington cover, you know, called, you know, 20 games that season and were never able to, you know, didn't, had to only use the term Baltimore. So it was, uh, as unique of a thing as X possibly happened in a team. So it's, so the expansion team had no name. Well, I mean, how crazy does that sound, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, and again, you look at the memorabilia, right? Uh, there is a, almost a cottage industry uh, uh, devoted to, you know, finding sort of those original, shall we say, misprints and or uh, trademarked infringing uh, items out there, right? But everything else, though, right, seemed kind of like almost Colts-ish, uh, if not a name, everything else, right? Absolutely. I mean, it was still, this. there was, uh, you know, blue and white and silver, Patterns they had uh, here the uh, uh, logo that's very similar to the Broncos. You know, we'll talk about how the Broncos kind of stole the Stallions' uh, logo in the years afterwards. Um, you know, so we had that. And look, when when that first season, you know, you could tell, you know, the NFL could tell, you know, the team they can't use the Colts, but they couldn't tell the fans. So you know, whenever you know the, the PA address would go, "You're Baltimore CFL," and they would still yell out Colts, they would still spell out Colts so as they did. When Unitas and Barry and Moore and Donovan were on the on sidelines, so um, it was uh, again a kind of a uh, David versus Goliath thing, and, and and you could tell the NFL could tell the team they couldn't use the Colts, but they weren't going to tell the fans that they couldn't call them the Colts. So it, it sounds to me that it was sort of a winking and a nodding, I guess, uh, stopping just short of that line of copyright infringement, but you know, not letting the kind of the fans in the stadium. Yelling Colts after the public address announcer stopped short at, at CFL. It seems like every other, shall we say, informal avenue uh, kind of just made that translation to Colts pretty much uh, straightforward. Yeah, they walked they walked the line as, as, as tightly as they could at that that point in time. But yeah, and it worked. I mean, it worked. Look, you talk about you know in in public relations, you talked about earned media. I mean, this was making national news. Nobody talks about the CFL any other time. I mean, it was leading. It was leading stories on Sports Center. It was in Sports Illustrated. It was in the Washington Post. Um, you know, it was on national news. I mean, you can't get that type of public relations, um, you know, uh, attention um, just by calling it the Bombers or you know, none of that would have happened. So, I mean, you know, and you know, at that point, the the calculator risk was ingenious because you. Know, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in earned media did they get just by calling themselves the cult? All right, we'll be back with uh, our conversation in just a couple of seconds. But first, uh, a little commercial message from our friends at Manscaped, the number one resource for men's below-the-belt grooming. Yep, Manscaped. They offer precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And that's not just a slogan, friends. You know, I can't tell you uh, how 
challenging it can be. And I'm, I'm sure you guys out there in listener land, you know what I'm talking about. You know, that, uh, you know, the package, so to speak, downstairs, you know, below the belt. It's, um, you know, it gets a little unwieldy once in a while. And, you know, I think uh, one's partner uh, can always uh, benefit by uh, not having to deal with the uh, thicket and the musty aromas and uh, the other sort of uh, untoward things that uh, potentially are, are part of the mix down there. And uh, Manscaped, it's a brilliant company. It's a tremendous idea. And, you know, they've got tremendous uh, products to, to bring to uh, the well-groomed man or one who frankly needs to be. The electric trimmer, they've redesigned it. They call it their new one, the Lawn Mower 2.0. It's got proprietary skin-safe technology, so the trimmer won't nick or snag your private parts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past, and uh, trust me, I've used the product. And boy, oh boy, it's, uh, let's put it this way, it's a hell of a lot better than using what you use on your face to keep yourself trim, shall we say. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver. Love that name. It's uh, the anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer, for that matter, for, you know, that sensitive area down there, right? You put deodorant on your armpits or under your armpits. Why not think about uh, perhaps uh, gussying up, shall we say, frequently in a deodorant-like manner uh, for your other sort of areas that, you know, a little bit more, shall we say, personal and, uh, and private. At Manscaped, it's tremendous. They've got a whole range of products. I highly encourage you to check them out. I have been fascinated by this company and the products that they offer. And uh, our listeners can get 20% off their first purchase, including, by the way, free shipping when you use the code GOODSEATS at manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off and free shipping when you use the code GOODSEATS at manscaped. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D, manscaped, past tense. Dot com manscaped.com and uh, you'll uh, always have the right tools for the job if you know what I mean and uh, you want to keep yourself neat and clean and trim down there by all means it's manscaped again 20% off and free shipping when you use the code good seats at manscaped.com again manscaped.com promo code good seats for 20% off and free shipping and we thank our friends at manscaped and we thank you for listening to the rest of our conversation coming up right now. Let's explain maybe a bit of sort of what happened in 94 that first season, because uh, I think another deft move from Spiros' uh, uh, perspective in management, right, was sort of an understanding that uh, okay, get the team, but the CFL is a different brand of football, and you know, uh, probably not wise to stock it with sort of NFL castoffs, et cetera. But but maybe uh, folks who are a little bit more finely tuned to the CFL version of the game, when in terms of looking at players and coaches, right? And, and a little bit of background for those men on the CFL. The CFL has you know a ratio rule in Canada where you have to have so many Canadian-born players on your roster. Now, employment laws obviously wouldn't allow that that work in the United States. So they had the option of bringing in whoever they wanted to. Um, and um, what he did right away was understand that he needed to bring in people who understood the CFL game. Um, and so he started right away with Don Matthews, uh, who's now uh, the late Don Matthews, um, who is uh, a Hall of Fame coach in the CFL. Um, and was established as it was a very defensive minded coach goes and gets signed, uh, Tracy Ham, who was a, a great quarterback for Georgia Southern in the eighties and, and had a great career 
um, in the CFL. And then he gets Jim Pop, who was a young, up-and-coming uh, personnel uh, man in the league. Um, and so he, I mean, like, like the good owners do, he let the football people take care of the football operations. And they put together a, a team that, uh, for the most part, was filled with veteran CFL players um, and really kind of all bought into what they were trying to do here in Baltimore. And it worked well, right? Because uh, they, you know, kind of hit the ground running. They were a very competitive team. I mean, you know, I, I think that also added to the the fervor of this this club, right? Because they essentially kind of hit the ground running and all the way to the Great Cup, for God's sakes. Right. right. I mean, yeah, and they... Um, they, they win their initial game at, at the Toronto Argonauts. Um, they're playing at Skydome, or I guess Rogers Center now. Um, and then they come home, they have a rough game, they, they lose their home. Over, so the CFL knew what they were doing. They brought the Calgary Stampeders into Baltimore's first game uh, with Doug Flutie on the roster at the time. So everyone knew who Doug Flutie was. Um, and you know, they lost that game. But they go and they kind of find themselves. Um, and they're the they um they go twelve and six in that first season. Uh, you know, they play eighteen games in the CFL schedule, um, and they're automatically uh, you know in the mix. Uh, their, their their big win comes late in the season. Uh, it's a uh, win at home in front of about forty thousand fans against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who won the East Division that year. So the CFLers finished second, and but it was a big fifty again fifty seven to ten win in front of forty thousand fans at Memorial Stadium. And that kind of I think kind of let them know that they could beat anybody at that point in time. Um, they get in the playoffs, and, you know, they, they make it all the way to the Grey Cup that first year. And that Grey Cup uh, was, uh, it still is considered one of the all-time great games in CFL history uh, against the BC Lions, who was a kind of an uh, underdog team of themselves getting there. Of course, the game was played in BC, so there's 55,000 fans, you know, in, in their home stadium. Um and again, it's us against the world for Baltimore because again, the Canadians, you know, even though a lot of those players that were on that Baltimore team were CFL greats already and played for a lot of those CFL teams in the past, considered them outsiders. They didn't want their trophy going to another country. And, you know, again, Baltimore's playing against the, you know, uh, trying to show themselves that we don't need the NFL. And the game comes down to the final play. Um, there's uh, lots of back and forth. Louis Pasaglia for the BC Lions kicks a, a field goal at the end of regulation and denies the CFLers their chance to um, win the, the Grey Cup in their opening season. But still, one of the best, you know, if not the greatest first season for any expansion team in North American sports history. Well, and a couple of things. So that that by the way, that game was on uh, November Sunday, November twenty seventh of uh, of nineteen ninety four. It's also the first time. Uh, I guess in history, professional football history, where a United States team and a Canadian team were battling it out for professional uh, championship supremacy. Looking at the stats, though, this 1994 season, it's also uh, pretty interesting to see that of the four teams based in the U.S. Uh, that season, Baltimore was by far, you know, the best of the lot. Right. I mean, you had Sacramento, Las Vegas. Shreveport basically in the basements of their respective divisions. I guess I'm really interested to find out how much uh, the CFL League and the Canadian fans and players generally either appreciated or liked the fact that Baltimore was such an immediate and immediate contender 
versus you know these uh, storied franchises in Canada. Was it a? I got to think it was a bit of love and hate uh, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think that that's accurate. And I didn't really, I guess, maybe at the time because I was so ingrained in us against the NFL and wanting to prove the NFL, we didn't need them. I didn't really understand the cultural aspect of the Canadians owning this 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 league. Um, so I think there was a there was a respect level of the. Um, of the players on that team, because again, a lot of them had a lot of success in the CFL prior to uh, coming to Baltimore and they were all in Canadian teams. Uh, but I think there was again, a bit of resentment that they kind of skirted the rules. You know, they didn't need to have any Canadian, there was no Canadian players on the, the, the CFLers roster that season. Um, but I think also in retrospect, and, and we could we'll get Elvin a little bit more. I mean, they understood that the league to survive needed these teams in the league at that point in time. You know, the league was, was, was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, you know, the, the, the ownerships groups were, um, very shaky at best in, in large part. Um, and, and the infusion of cash that these, uh, U.S. expansion teams provided the league really helped stabilize them for the long term. So, uh, the aftermath, right? So I, I gotta think that, uh, the fan base was, uh, extraordinarily proud of this team in this first season. Uh, pretty decent attendance. I'm sure the uh, the, the media uh, following uh, both of games as well as the coverage of the team was was pretty decent, you know? Yeah, and, and I think absolutely. I'm looking at the average 37,000 fans a game. And I, how many tickets of that was sold is still uh, versus giveaways and discounted. Um, that's been debated you know, for years. But there was still a rabid fan base. And also, remember, this is 1994, uh, middle of the season, their first season. The only other team in town is the Orioles. What happens in 1994? Baseball strike. Right? So baseball goes away. So what do you have? You have no NFL, no Major League Baseball. Uh, the Terps and Navy football were really irrelevant at that point in time. So the CFLers were the only team in town. So you know, talk about lightning in a bottle and, and, and everything converging at just the right way and, and, and perfect timing. You know, you come into town and, you know, a, a rabid sports town and there's no sports teams but you. So you're getting all of the sports coverage. So you know, they've got a lot more sports coverage than they may have gotten in any other point in Baltimore sports history because, again, they were the only game in town um, at that point in time. It's not a college. You know, again, this is, Baltimore is not really a college town as far as sports go. Um, you know, Maryland is, is, is always a struggle to attract the Baltimore crowd. And again, Navy has always done well through the years, but, uh, they were, in a, you know, they weren't the team that they are now and they had been for the last you know, 15 years or so. So they were in a down period. So really, if you wanted to enjoy a quality sports team at that point in time in Baltimore, it was the CFLers. That's, that's very interesting. It's also, too, that, you know, Baltimore by far was the biggest market of the four uh, U.S. teams playing in the league, too, uh, itself having been a former NFL franchise probably, probably didn't hurt. But that's, that's an interesting confluence of events. Do, do I have this right? Did, did they actually – now, I've seen it reported. You, you tell me. You were sort of hinting at the ticket sales. Did they report a profit that first year? Uh, it's been debated. I mean, I, I think they, they did better financially than any other – team exactly what those numbers were you know i've heard different things so i wouldn't want to you know again i, I would never saw the actual books there was reports they made a profit there was some reports that they had a, a small loss 
Um, but they definitely did better financially than any other CFL uh, you know, team, at least in the U.S. I, that that too is va- is fascinating, and and you have to look at uh, the old World Football League and the old USFL. You know, I mean, a lot of people had to be standing up and taking notice of that that story in such a, an early uh, period of time. Yeah, and again, they they did it right. You know, so many times you know, a lot of these a lot of these leagues, a lot of these expansions, whether it be the USFL or it be the World League or it be whatever they they went for cast, but they went for names, they went for you know, they just went to try to, you know, get names on a roster instead of the right players. And what they did was they built this team the right way. They knew they brought in a complimentary group of players, um, a complimentary group of coaches, um, and, and who understood the CFL game, um, and you know, was not afraid to, to mix up the roster, was not, a, you know, they're not afraid to you know, look for the right players in the college game. Um, and, and, you know, they, you know, if you're looking to build a model franchise, um, this is it. I mean, from the front office to the ticket staff to the broadcasters to the players um, to, you know, to including the Baltimore Colts marching band and then this um, to in, including, you know, um, bringing the, 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 the old Baltimore Colts grades, Johnny Unitas and, and Lenny Moore and, and all of those folks who were still in town who embraced the team as well. You know, when, when, when they gave the okay, you know, when Johnny Unitas says, hey, we need to back these guys. Because, again, Johnny Unitas and Art Donovan and Lenny Moore, they could relate to these guys. You know, they didn't make millions of dollars playing football. They, they made the same amount of money as these guys did. So they could relate to these guys on a, on a, on a, on a personal and professional level as well. So, again, a very unique time. Uh, as you can see, it's more than just a, you know, talk about a, a team that kind of captured lightning in a bottle on the field. There's so much going on around it that makes this story as fascinating as anything you know, you'll see in sports today. Well, all right, and more intrigue to come, right? So you're mentioning, obviously, the CFL itself having uh, issues, and there's still more expansion and relocation in the U.S. to happen. But So maybe you can set the table for what, what transpires in, in the 95 season, both for the team uh, and its evolution into a new name, as well as the league itself, which comes up with a very interesting sort of uh, uh, lineup of how the teams are going to be arranged for the following season. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, what happens uh, um, is uh, they arrange, they get rid of the East-West divisions and they create a North-South division, um, which includes uh, um, all of the U.S. teams and uh, – one division and all the Canadian teams in another. Um, Las Vegas folds because they were a complete disaster. Sacramento moves to Houston and becomes, uh, or San Antonio to become the Texans and they play at the Alamo Dome. Uh, and then they bring in the Shreveport remains and then they bring in the, uh, Birmingham Barracudas and the, uh, Memphis Mad Dogs. Right. And by the way, two, two, and actually if you throw in San Antonio, three historically, uh, sought after markets for pro football every time there's a new pro football league that comes about, right? Absolutely. I mean, Memphis and, and uh, Birmingham were both USFL cities, um, very strong high school and college in San Antonio uh, was, uh, you know, again, the, the Texas market um, was something that uh, you know, they were uh, thriving to get into. So that was a, another big market in town. So I think it's also interesting you get the, the the Canadian teams I guess essentially stacking up against the 
the U.S. team sort of as a that, it's an interesting dynamic, considering that it, it almost virtually guarantees that there's going to be some U.S. presence in the playoffs come along. And, and lo and behold, guess what happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way it happened was, I believe, the one of the, uh, the teams from the Canadian, because there was an uneven balance, I think it was eight on one side, five on the other. So one of the teams from the, the lowest ranked team from the Canadian division would make the playoffs in the, um, on, on the east, on the uh, south side. So it's set up for, you know, again, an interesting dynamic. Um, again, there's still a huge, uh, I think interest waned a little bit in Baltimore the second year at first. But I think that's just because of anything, you know, it's, it was in the second year, it was still drawing over 30,000 fans a game. Um, you know, they had this uh, mantra of unfinished business. They knew how close they were. Um, and Baltimore brought back pretty much the same team. Uh, you know, they go and they add some, some key players, you know, on that roster, um, you know, in, including um, Carlos Huerta as their kicker. Um, they, Added Chris Wright, who was a you know a star wide out, you know among other players on that team. So and they they really kind of just added um, the complementary pieces to go with the, the course. They were rocking and rolling and ready to go at that point in time. Give us though a sense of of the name change that occurred uh, in the off season as well. Uh, what, what what was the process there, and why was Sparrows even? Like why did it matter at that point that he should have a new? Well, I think that it was it was kind of it came to the fact. That, I mean, they were getting some pro bono legal help. Um, that was you know, only could go so far. Um, they realized that this was a fight that they just couldn't win at that point, um, and they knew that they had a, they couldn't go to a, they couldn't go a second season without a name. So they had a contest and they went with the stallion. So it's still the same logo, same colors, same horse theme. Um, but at the end of the day, it went with uh, the stallion. Do I have this right that uh, that the uh, the contest didn't uh, finish until actually the season actually began? So that so technically they began the season still as the Baltimore, I guess, football club, and and the stallion's name after that uh, after that poll uh, kind of kicked in the second or third week of the season. That's not the way I recalled it, but I'd have to double check on that. But I. I, I... I didn't recall it that way. Um, so, but uh, I know it was like right, uh, it was right as the season began. Maybe it was in the preseason, but it was definitely, uh, you know, by the start of the season, they were the Stallions. I'll put it out there to our fans. The, the fans in Baltimore, I'm sure, are screaming at their devices right now what the answer is to that. But uh, to me, that's fascinating stuff, right? Because to be able to change a name sort of midstream and all that kind of stuff. But but Stallions indeed was a, a voted upon uh, nickname. Is that right? Fact, much like the Ravens end up, uh, you know, fans end up picking the Ravens later on. Same, same kind of concept. For all intents and purposes, though, aside from and the, obviously the play, the uh, team continued to sort of just continue to pick up where where they had left off. What was the sense in Baltimore that the fans and and or the team? I mean, I guess I guess the fact that they were doing so well, but I juxtapose that with the CFL, right? Which you mentioned was a bit wobbly. Was it kind of a pyrrhic uh, kind of haughtiness or, or a victory, so to speak, or or was they they feel like they were really they were really onto something, and this was just year two of it? I think it was the fans were you know look I think I think it was this, this was year two of it. I think they were still learning the NF the CFL, and I I just felt like they felt like there were some good teams and there were some bad teams. I mean, look, uh, San Antonio was a solid team, um, you know, and BC in that league was a solid team. Calgary was a solid team. 
you know, so there were a lot of good teams, and you know, like we see in sports, there were some really bad teams too. Um, and I think they, I think there was a sense of, you know, well, we came so close last year, we want to bring a championship back to back to Baltimore. Um, and it was a, uh, um, you know, it, they were, uh, you know, other than a, a little blip on the schedule, you know, you, you you talk about that '95 season, they had a, a stretch there where they lost, they lost two in a row. Um, but they played um, between uh, July 29th and August 12th. So that's about 14 days. They played one, two, three, four, four games in about 14 days. Imagine doing that in the NFL. And in the CFL, they did it with a 37-man, 36-man roster. So they lost two of those games there where they had to go from they they played they won at Birmingham thirty six to eight. Then they traveled three days later to go to Edmonton where they won. Then four days later they played in Calgary, and then six days later after that they played at home against Memphis. So it was you know one two three four cities two countries in fourteen days with the thirty six man roster, and they still came out you know winning two of those four games. Yeah, and I think in the in the stands, it's also pretty uh, amazing that they were still the second uh, highest drawing team, uh, even though baseball had come back versus say '94. Can you maybe walk us a little bit through sort of the the final weeks of that season? Because not only were they, you know, on the march and and winning impressively uh, the Grey Cup that season, but there was also a bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes that kind of ultimately made it truly a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you talk about, first off, the things going on outside of football. You talk about the the, the, the Orioles, again, um, were still drawing 47,000 fans. Remember, 1995 was the year Cal Ripken broke the streak, 21-31 streak. So the Oriole games were packed. You know, During that time, everyone was kind of paying attention to Cal Ripken, um, getting ready to break Lou Gehrig's record at that point in time. Um, and the Stallions just keep rocking and rolling after that, you know, that stretch in August, I mean, they, they go and they, they've never lost another game. Um, and including you know, some, some pretty big wins, uh, 41 to 14 at home on August 26 against the Toronto Argonauts, 41 to 14 again at the Hamilton Tiger Cats, um, you know, among other big wins. Um, and, you know, they're still going. Um, and you know, little do they know at this point in time, um, that there are discussions between the governor of Maryland at the time, uh, Paris Glendening, and Art Modell in Cleveland. And there's been some rumblings again. The rumblings of the NFL returning never stopped. I think most Baltimore fans felt like if we did get an NFL team, we would just have two teams. I don't think people really thought of that far ahead. Um, so what happens? Um, they make the playoffs. In uh, 1995, they're the number one seed in the um, in the league that year, and you know they go and they um, you know they they are really the top team in the league, and I don't think anyone's going to really stop them. They win that first game, um, and next thing you know, uh, two days later, they get a uh, a call um, to find out that the uh, the Browns are coming to Baltimore. So, like, well, what does that really mean to us, right? They, they, they play again. They win their semifinal game against Winnipeg, 36-21, against a 
just 21,000 fans at Memorial Stadium. Um, and again, the November 6th is when they officially announced that the Browns are coming. At that point in time, um, it's like they're the forgotten team. Um, I mean, it was almost, it was all Baltimore Browns all the time at that point. You know, the Ravens were still, you know, they weren't sure what the, they were going to call them at that point in time. Um, and they still have two games to go. Um, so six days later, after the, the Colts announced, or the, the Browns announced that they're coming to Baltimore, they defeat the San Antonio Texans 21 to 11 in front of 30,000 fans at Memorial Stadium. And that represented the final game played, uh, at home of the Stallions and the final game ever played between two U.S. based teams in the CFL. And, you know, uh, a week after that, they go, um, and they win the, um, they go to Saskatchewan and they just pretty much destroy the Calgary Stampeders 37 to 20 and win the, um, win the Grey Cup and they come home and nobody cares. See, that's interesting. So put this in context, right? So I, I think that, I think the date was November 6th, 1995 is when Art Modell announces at a press conference at Camden Yards that that they, he signed a deal. This is in the middle of the NFL season. Uh, I think they had played nine games, and they're basically going to move to Baltimore in 96. That was still a messy – messiness still yet to come. But literally right in the middle of this playoff run that uh, in the in the subsequent two weeks that you just mentioned, the Stallions basically uh, march all the way to the Grey Cup championship. Uh, and it's just – it's amazing how – I want to say fickle, but I mean, what did what did fans sort of expect? I mean, I, I guess the fascination that they could be talking about. Okay, we're going to get an NFL team, but but how could you sort of how could you sort of not you know follow through with the fact the team that you've you know that's gotten your attention over the last year and a half, you know, is two games away from winning the championship in in that in that entity? Yeah, and I think look, uh, Baltimore is is, is a. It's a major league sports town, but it's not Los Angeles. It's not New York. Um, it, it's not Chicago. It's not Boston. There's only so much attention that can go around. Um, and I think, you know, again, the NFL is king. I mean, look, uh, if someone could would tell you again, you know, the Ravens went four and twelve that first season. If someone, if, if you polled all the, uh, you know, uh, all the Baltimore sports fans in town, said, do you want a CFL championship? Uh, football team, or do you want a four and twelve NFL team? And I would tell you about ninety percent of them would tell you they would want the four and twelve NFL team because again, the NFL is king. Um, that doesn't mean they don't appreciate what the Colts, what the Ravens, what the Ravens, what the Stallions did. But I think you know at that point they were ready to move on. Um, and not everybody. There was a, a loyal group of fans that 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 greeted them at BWI Airport. That was greeted them for a small ceremony at the Inner Harbor um, the next day. But after that, um, you know, look, if the CFL wasn't going to work in Baltimore, it wasn't working anywhere in the U.S. And you know, the CFL was ready to pull the plug on U.S. expansion. Yeah, and that to me is the ultimate sort of uh, intrigue here, where you know the the Stallions become the first and still only. U.S. champions of this Canadian Football League, and then literally the next season, it's all a blur of memory. Um, and, and interesting, you know, you wonder had this Baltimore 
uh, or this absconsion, if that's a word, or the absconding of, or at least the announced absconding of the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore. You wonder what would happen if that hadn't happened or been announced. Yeah, would the Stallions have continued? Would the CFL have gone for another year of the U.S.? Or, or do you I think it was already a fait accompli? I think they may have held on for another year or two. I think uh, Baltimore would have stuck around. I think San Antonio would have stuck around. And they would have maybe been able to cobble together one or two other teams, um, you know, in, in different markets. Uh, there was talk about, you know, Houston getting a team uh, because of uh, uh, them losing the Oilers and uh, a couple other teams that were cities that were in the mix. They probably could have held one. I, I still don't think it would have lasted long because, again, what the TFL really wanted at that point in time. Uh, they, you know, they, they talked about expansion into the U.S., but what they really wanted was the expansion fees. And what those expansion fees did was, was basically shore up all of the failing Canadian based teams, um, and help them stabilize the league. So, you know, in that regard, while the, 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 you know, other than the Stallions, the, the teams were pretty much a, a failure and a, and a blip on the CFL, um, history books, um, they really helped keep the league going. So explain to me a bit about how the end came about, because it sounds to me like Spiros was, uh, you know, trying to at least find maybe another U.S. port of call for this team if Baltimore was not going to be the place and try to keep the CFL going in the the U.S. There was there was an effort to kind of save the Stallions, Um, you know, and I think there and I talked to fan uh, people in their ticket booth, you know, it's in the book. That, that tried to sell 20,000 season tickets to, you know, for uh, save our stallions um, attempt, but there just wasn't enough advertising dollars in Baltimore. Again, again, uh, Baltimore, you know, can't support three major sports leagues and, and the stadiums wouldn't work, um, you know, for, with the different field configurations for NFL and CFL teams. There's too much, uh, you know, there would be too much overlap in the seasons. It just wasn't going to work here in Baltimore when, when the NFL came back. He looked at Virginia. He looked at Houston. Um, and then, again, the league just decided they weren't going to, you know, most of the other teams, um, U.S. teams, weren't just not doing this anymore. If we're not going to, there's not going to be any other U.S. teams. They folded. And, uh, and the, pretty much CFL decided we're going to fold all the teams. Um, and at that point in time, um, you know, Spears' team, again, was, was viable. They're still a viable franchise. So what the CFL did was they moved, they folded the Baltimore team and they moved um, the remnants of the Stallions to Montreal and renamed them the Alouettes, which had been a team in existence there for 40 years before folding about 10 years prior. So it was kind of the rebirth. So, you know, part of this franchise's legacy is that it brought football back to Baltimore and then it brought football back to Montreal. Um, you know, in that regard. And, 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 uh, you know, Montreal, and again, when they were then required to follow the Canadian, you know, born roster rules, um, some of the players, many of the players stayed with, um, the Alouettes and Jim Pop, Don Matthews, who went to, you know, who ended up being the coach uh, in Toronto. A lot of players went to Toronto with over there. Um, and Montreal for many years to come, you know, became one of the model franchises in CFL, won, you know, multiple CFL championships, advanced uh, several others. Um, and we're really, you know, again, that, that legacy kind of lived on there through Montreal. 
So that to me is the height of irony for this story. Maybe this is the way we can sort of uh, uh, put a nice, uh, uh, you know, shiny bow on on this conversation and this story. You, you you basically sort of hit it hit the nail right on the head. Right here here is a franchise uh, that has essentially been lost to history, literally and figuratively. That arguably convinced, or at least on some level, uh, made the case for Baltimore to yet again get. Uh, top-tier NFL football, and uh, also resulted in the return of one of the more sort of uh, uh, legacy franchises in the CFL uh, with the rebirth of the of the Alouettes. Yet, this team, I guess officially, doesn't have any place uh, for its history uh, to be claimed, right? It doesn't really live with the Alouettes. It certainly doesn't live in, in Baltimore. There is no it's kind of a not only a footnote, but it doesn't. There's no historical lineage that's official for this team, is there? No, correct. And I mean, they live on. They live on. I think through the legacy that they built through Montreal, they live through the legacy of the fans here in Baltimore. Uh, there was a 20-year reunion several years ago here in town that the players kind of were able to kind of put a little bit of closure on it. And they also live in the legacy of look, the uh, Don Matthews. CFL Hall of Famer, Mike Pringle, greatest running back in CFL history, Tracy Ham, CFL Hall of Famer, Alfred Swack Payton, one of the greatest defensive players in CFL history. His son now plays in the NBA. Um, you know, and, and several other players on that team went on to, um, to, uh, to greatness. Jim Pop, the general manager, became probably the greatest general manager in CFL history. Uh, Sharp Pordendash, an offensive lineman, went on to play with the Raiders and the Redskins. Josh Miller, the punter, went on to uh, win a Super Bowl with the Patriots in the NFL. Um, so, you know, they um, have a, a legacy here that, that's strong. Paul DiPodesto, the, the great baseball executive, was an intern for the CFL Stallions. Um, so you know, there is um, there's a legacy there. It's not in the history books, but their impact in professional sports here in Baltimore and in Canada, um, is one that, that shouldn't be forgotten. No, I, I think it's an amazing story. And this is this is a, a tailor made for this little silly show that we do. Uh, it's just they're just these are stories and memories of of uh, of the past that you know uh, sadly sort of get swept under the various rugs and rubble of of what used to be, and uh, and frankly, you know, uh, get forgotten and or you know misunderstood. Uh, as the years sort of roll on. And, and, you know, I think it's really important to kind of sort of circle around some of these things, especially when, to your point, uh, there is lots of different sort of layers of legacy. I mean, that may not be sort of direct and or uh, neat, but, you know, the peop- these we're talking about people and players and situations where people come together and fans, right? So for those sort of magic moments in time, right, um, you know, none of us is guaranteed uh, all of those things in our lifetimes, right? But but you know when the things come together, when the the planets do align, and situations sort of uh, come about. I mean, you know, this was a pretty interesting time in Baltimore and in uh, pro football and in Canadian football and in American football history. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I mean, you just think of everything that had to come together at just the right time for this to work. You know, you had the Colts, you had those the, the NFL leave Baltimore. You had expansion teams go to two different cities. You had the, this expansion, uh, you had the death of the World Football League, which allowed Sacramento to come in a year earlier. 
Um, you had, uh, um, you know, you had the baseball strike, which allowed there to be greater attention uh, to um, the CFL game in town. So all of these things had to come together at the same time for this to work and this two-year window here in Baltimore. Um, again, I can't imagine this working today. I couldn't imagine it working 10 years before it happened. And I can't imagine it working at any other point in, in, in professional sports history. I mean, it's such a unique story, um, and it's it's different than anything you'll ever see. I mean, it has all the elements of a great sports story. Um, you know, if you're a true sports fan, if you love sports, if you love football, you're going to love this this book. You're going to love this. Um, you're going to love this story because I don't think you need to be a CFL fan. Uh, to appreciate this, I don't think you need to be an NFL fan to appreciate it. If you appreciate sports um, and, and everything that sports is meant to be, triumph, tragedy, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, as they used to say, um, you know, uh, community, um, heartbreak, triumph. I mean, everything that you, you would want in, in, in a sports story is wrapped up in a bow in this two-year window. All right, one more question, and I'm going to let you promote. Has there been any effort any interest, any pursuit by anybody to, I don't know, claim the legacy or memorialize uh, the records and or, you know, a mini Hall of Fame or or or, or have it domiciled somewhere? I, I, do you put it, can it be at the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Can, can the CFL kind of maybe officially recognize, you know, this part of its history, that kind of stuff? But I'm sure a desire not to. The CFL Hall of Fame does recognize those players and their time in Baltimore. Um, you know, they do recognize them and the, they are in the record books while they don't, you know, they, those records that, I mean, the, the, the team with the most wins in CFL history is still the Baltimore Stallion. They still claim that great cup and their name is still on that great cup in 1995. Those players are still in the Hall of Fame. Here in Baltimore, there are fans that, you know, still collect the, the, the memorabilia. There are historians that, that have, um, preserved their history through photographs that are included in the book, but, you know, game-worn jerseys are still popping up all over the place. Um, there are trading cards out there. There are um, still, I mean, I've got a possession of a uh, Baltimore Colts program for the first game that isn't scratched out, you know. So, and they're still out there on YouTube and, and, and uh, the Internet and so forth. So there's not an official um, home, but you know, it's being preserved in, in other ways. All right. Well, uh, one of those ways is uh, preservation is uh, this book. So give our audience uh, a bit of a, uh, a timeline about uh, the book's availability both now and uh, later this year, because I'm sure I'm not the only one that wants to get a copy. Well, it's available online uh, for pre-order uh, and, uh, on Amazon and the Carlin Publishing website. Um, and if you Google, um, you know, Google the title of the book, Baltimore Stallions, um, you know, the, the free, free in history of a CFL champion. Um, you can find it right there, uh, online, uh, right there. Uh, it's due to come out in November. Um, and again, it's, uh, it should be available where, you know, Barnes and Noble and uh, wherever books are sold. All right. So pre order, uh, early and often, friends. Uh, and do you anticipate, I gotta think there's gonna be, there's some natural promotional opportunities, not only in Baltimore, but maybe elsewhere in the CFL sort of footprint and or I don't know. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, I've been out there again. I've been out there uh, promoting uh, this on social media already. Uh, I've been working again with with former executives and players, and hoping to have and fans trying to organize some some sort of uh, event, uh, whether it be a panel discussion. Uh, there'll be some book signings that I'm still in the works with. Um, and really, again, the, the book uh, is unique. It includes over 50. Uh, interviews of players, fans, coaches, executives, broadcasters, historians. Um, it's got dozens of original pictures um, that highlight you know, their two years here in Baltimore. Um, and, and really just uh, you know, captures this story. Uh, um, again, I think if, if you really want to kind of frame the book, it's not just the two years. I would say, it, again, it, it kind of starts the day that the Cold Club town and it ends the day that the Ravens arrive and kind of looks at this team's legacy. Um, and so we, we're going to be out there promoting it. Um, and I, I know, like I said, I've already had a lot of interest from fans or Facebook groups that you know, that are CFL groups that have expressed interest in it. There are um, Baltimore Stallion-specific Facebook groups out there that are um, you know, have been very helpful with me in, in researching this book and have wanted to see their story told for a long time. Um, again, there were a lot of people kind of supported this team um, that that felt slighted by the NFL and, and felt loyal to the Stallions. And you know, when 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 the when you know when the NFL told us to build a museum, uh, the Stallions came here and, and said, "We love you. We want to bring football back to Baltimore." And those fans stayed true to that team even to this day. Well, th- Ron, this has been fantastic. I, uh, I I look forward to sharing this episode and. Um, you know, let's also stay in touch as the the months roll on, because, um, you know, inevitably we're, you know, part of my little uh, uh, grand plan over time is to do some live events and kind of, you know, be, be a little bit more uh, directly uh, interviewing uh, various folks who are more, you know, directly involved in some of these teams. We've done a, a bit of it, but I like, you know, a couple of live events and stuff. I can imagine, you know, this could easily fit into to being one of those. Right? I, I can imagine you being able to have like a conversation with some uh former players and or executives and stuff. I could, you know, I, I don't want to promote for you, but I could, I can imagine there's some, some interesting events that could sort of tie into all this, especially in Baltimore. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe some ideas could be, uh, could be had over, over the months. Uh, and I'm happy to trade notes with you if you're ever interested in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I, 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 I've been passionate about this. Um, this is a story I've been trying to get to, uh, to print, uh, for, for more than a decade. So, um, the fact that we're you're just about there uh, has been a true labor of love. Um, you know, again, it was a hard time trying to explain to you know, publishers the, you know, what this story was. And, you know, they didn't quite get it. And I said, we, you kind of had to be there. And the folks that were there, they see what happened. They see what they went through. I, mean, I remember crying, you know, the day that the Colts left. I remember crying the day that they told us you know, that we weren't good enough for the NFL. I remember being excited when this group came in, and I remember being upset when they left. Um, and, and, you know, again, I, I just think that, you know, if you enjoy sports, you're going to love this story. Yes, it's uh, arguably the uh, football team that uh, may be time forgot, and well, you know it's not the only one, but uh, it's it's a it's probably the most successful one that uh, most people, I think, even in Baltimore, may have a tough time remembering. But to, to me, this is uh, exactly why we do these shows, and um, 
I thank Ron for uh, for regaling us with this story. The uh, book that uh, Ron has penned is called The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief, Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise. Uh, the book does not come out until November of uh, this year, a couple months from now, but you can indeed pre-order it, and we encourage you to do so on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. I think it's number 124. Wow. Featuring uh, Ron Snyder. And uh, you'll find a link conveniently to this book uh, on Amazon. Get it pre-ordered. Get it into your bookshelf or your virtual uh, delivery system to make sure that you get it. Be the first one on your block to to have a copy. Uh, Give us some shekels of love as you do so. We'll definitely uh, uh, bring... Uh, this back to your attention back in November when it's actually out for release. But again, the book is called The Baltimore Stallions, The Brief Brilliant History of the CFL Champion Franchise. Again, available for pre-order right now uh, and is published by our friends at McFarland Publishing. And again, goodseatstillavailable.com. That's the locus for everything about this show, not only uh, to, to order books and stuff, but literally to see every and listen to or download every episode that we've done so far for the last two plus years. You'll find all of our old episodes. You'll see some great imagery there, and uh, uh, you'll see links to books and other media that we feature uh, in our conversations. It's all there. Good seats, still available.com. You can uh, click on the email link, send us some email, and get our newsletter if you want to do that. Uh, you'll see all of our social media feeds there, including Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You'll see all those links there. Just go there and check it all out. And uh, and again, we appreciate you when you do so at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We also want to say thank you, of course, a tip of the proverbial digital hat to our friend Jerry Payne, who painstakingly, get it, puts our pieces together. And uh, we thank him tremendously for yet again doing so, despite all the odds against it. He, of course, at Podfly Productions. Find out more about them at Podfly. All right. I uh, wish you a tremendous uh, week ahead. And uh, we leave you now with, yes, a theme song. Baltimore CFL team, even the year before they were known as the Stallions, had a theme song. And it was uh, done in conjunction with the television station in Baltimore that carried the bulk of their home games, WMAR-TV News Channel 2. And uh, we leave you now with the uh, semi-official, I think, Baltimore CFL football theme song. Until next week. A pleasant adieu, and we'll uh, see you next week. Ticket window's now closed. Bye. Football is back. It's a brand new day. Now the town is rocking at the CFL game. Catch all the action on News Channel 2. Good gosh almighty. It's so exciting. Catch the CFL game.